So have you had enough of talking now? I hope so, because it's got to last you for like six weeks or three months. So I hope this was enough. So this evening we're going to uh, make the formal entry into the retreat space and the full noble silence will start uh, this evening. We normally make this entry with a, a short ritual. It's one of the few rituals that we do here called Taking of the Refuges and Precepts. So we'll do that tonight as our way of entering the space. And again, I just want to um, recognize and uh, remember the events of 9-11-2001. This is the 15th anniversary of the attacks on the World Trade Center. And there's a lot of observance in New York City today, of course. And I imagine a lot of us have felt the memories of that and the impact of that in our lives and in the world. So a lot of sympathy for the people who were killed on that day, a lot of sympathy for the lives that were touched, and for all of us who were affected by that event. The Buddha was asked, you know, many questions after his awakening, and one time uh, being approached him and asked, Venerable Sir, how did you cross the flood? And that means the flood of existence with all the stormy waves that life brings. And the Buddha replied, I crossed the flood by not tarrying and not hurrying. When I tarried, I sank. And when I hurried, I was swept away. I think this is a really good uh, piece of advice for starting on a long retreat. This is a really good attitude to set. You don't have to hurry in this practice, but you also don't want to tarry. So take it at a steady, continuous pace, and that is the way that the floods of existence will be crossed, one step at a time, one breath at a time. So tonight we'll make the first entry with taking together the three refuges and the five precepts. So in the talk this evening, I want to talk about what those are for us. I'm sure you've uh, all taken these a number of times. For a lot of you, you've taken them many times. and are very familiar with these reflections and I just want to amplify a little bit things that we often say at the beginning of a retreat. So I'll start with the question, what does refuge mean? When we say, I, I take refuge, what does that word refuge mean? And I think what comes to my mind is it's a place where we feel safe. A place of safety for beings. And one of the nice things in the walks around here, you'll see a lot of land that's been designated as wildlife refuge. And that means that hopefully all the animals who enter those terrains will feel safe because there's no hunting and no fishing allowed in that areas of wildlife refuge, a place where the deer can relax, where the turkeys can make all the noise they want, even around Thanksgiving and no one will shoot them. Uh, in, Hawaii, in old Hawaii, there were places of refuge. The Hawaiian name was Pu'u Honua. There's still a, quite a famous one on the Big Island, which is also a great snorkeling spot if you get down that way. But the place of refuge was a place, if a person was uh, considered to have committed a crime, and a crime could be something 
rather small, like uh, for a common person to let their shadow fall on a member of the nobility, then uh, that crime was often uh, met with the penalty of death. So once a person was considered to have committed a crime, their death was fairly assured, but they had one out. If they could get to a place of refuge, then they couldn't be captured or killed from that spot. In addition, there, it was considered sacred space. The places of refuge were sacred space and there were priests there who could hear the person's confession, absolve them of the crime and consider them purified. And then they could be released back into society. So for us, IMS works a little bit like a place of refuge. You know, we come here, we remember some things we wish we hadn't done, we get a little scrubbed clean with mindfulness, and then we get sent back in the world. All is forgiven. So the center is a place of refuge for for many. I hope it will feel that way for you. Um, And one of the other kind of implications of refuge is that the world in general is an uncertain and sometimes dangerous place. We need places of safety because not every place is safe. Sometimes our health is at risk, sometimes our body is at risk, sometimes our emotions are at risk, sometimes our very life is at risk because the world is uncertain. Of course, this is a key teaching of of the Buddhas. So we all need places of refuge at times. And retreats often remind us very often how uncertain the world of body and mind is. We can't control what happens in the body. We can't control what happens in the mind. And on retreat, it's very clear. Sometimes it's delightful. Sometimes it's difficult. And a long retreat especially has a way of taking us somewhat near the limits of what we are comfortable with. It could be with physical comfort. It could be in the comfort of the emotions that come up. Sometimes loneliness or hopelessness can come during long retreats or fear. Um, It can be where our thoughts lead us. Our thoughts lead us into memories we'd rather not revisit or projections about the future. So this uncontrollability of events, the uncertainty of our experience often comes through clearly in a long retreat And in times like this, when we're getting close to the edge of what's comfortable or what we think we can bear, we all need to recall what's our refuge. We all need to find refuges in times like that. Of course, traditionally, in um, the Buddhist teachings, in all the Buddhist traditions, they are considered to be three genuine refuges. Among them are not a lot of money or a comfortable home or a position of power or status in the world. But the three true refuges are in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So these are the three that we want to talk about tonight. In our lineage, we often talk about these as... uh, taking refuge. We take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, or Sangha. But the literal translation of the Pali is, I go for refuge. 
I go to the Buddha for refuge. I go to the Dharma for refuge. I go to the Sangha for refuge. That's the meaning of this word gachami in our chant is go to. And so this ties back into uh, ancient Indian culture where the uncertainties of life, which poor people were exposed to a lot back then, some of the uncertainty of life could be uh, defended against if one came under the protection of either a powerful political figure or a very wealthy landowner. And people talked about going for refuge to those persons. And if one came under their wing, so to speak, one had a better chance of dealing with everything that, that life brought to one. It's a little bit like um, taking refuge in Barack Obama, for instance, which, who I think actually is a great refuge for many, many reasons. So we understand that we can find some real sense of, of safety in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And also as we start to turn to these refuges more and more often, we find they provide another element, which is giving direction to our lives. We don't just turn to them in times of need or uncertainty, but we start to recognize these are the reliable avenues for a human life. And we start to orient our life choices and our life direction around the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, because these represent three really important values for us as practitioners. They really tell us how we should orient our life, our thoughts, our speech, our actions, our choices, our values, our direction. So I want to talk about all of these three tonight, and then we'll take the refuges together. Then I want to talk about the five precepts, the five lay precepts, and we'll take those together. That will be our content for this evening. So first, the refuge in the Buddha. We often say that uh, the refuges have two meanings. One is outer and one is inner. So with the Buddha, for instance, the outer form of the refuge is taking refuge in the historical person. The historical Buddha who lived 2,500 years ago in northern India, whose given name was Siddhartha Gotama. The clan that he was in was the Sakya clan, uh, living near the border of India and Nepal, uh, near a town called Kapilavatu. You know his life story. He grew up in a life of luxury, sometimes said to have been a prince, but I think that's an overstatement. There was a king in the area, but that was not his father, but his father was wealthy. So he grew up in a life of luxury at age 29, left home as the Bodhisattva to discover the path to freedom, discovered what he was looking for at age 35, and then taught for 45 years until he died at 80. I was brought up in the Christian tradition. Actually, I was brought up Presbyterian, which is kind of to say with as little religion as possible, but a touch of religion. And I studied the Bible a bit when I was growing up. And as I recall, in my edition of the Bible, all the teachings of Jesus occupied maybe 30 or 40 pages in my edition of King James Bible. 
So when I uh, started looking into Buddhism, it was really interesting to find that the words of the Buddha occupy about 20 volumes in the Pali Canon. So there was, uh, even though it happened 500 years before Jesus, there was much better recording apparatus, which was memory at that time. And because he lived such a long life and had so many teachings, they were remembered and later written down. So there are 20 volumes about the historical Buddha and his teaching. So we're able to get a, a much fuller portrait of him that I believe is, is reasonably accurate. It's not 100% accurate, but I believe it's reasonably accurate. Based on the stories that I know from those readings about the historical Buddha, I consider him the most amazing person who's ever walked on the face of the earth. And what I want to do this evening in talking about the historical Buddha is to talk about some of his qualities that made him so amazing. In the West, we have tended to present the Vipassana teachings without a lot of historical um, overlay or cultural overlay. But in fact, there is a lot there if one becomes interested. So the, the way I kind of see it is that for a lot of Vipassana practitioners, we grow up without a strong sense of connection to the person of the historical Buddha. And my connection to that figure became much deeper after reading you know, many volumes of the recorded teachings. So he has become a very inspiring and important figure for me in, in a very personal way. And I want to talk some about that tonight, what I appreciate about him. Um, it's fine if you don't have a connection with the historical figure because there's also an inner refuge that is uh, as important. But if you get connected to the outer figure, it can be a great source of inspiration and faith and confidence. So the Buddha taught and died somewhere around uh, 500 BCE, 500 years before uh, the Christian era or the common era. And the teachings spread from Northern India really throughout Asia, so that at one time or another, virtually all of Asia was entirely or mostly Buddhist. It's very interesting if you look at the history from Afghanistan. Do you remember when the Taliban blew up those two big standing statues? That was the extent to which Buddhism had traveled west, and it happened a long time ago, and it was very influential in Afghanistan. And then moving eastward through Pakistan, northern India, quite a bit in Nepal, spread, of course, to Tibet through the Silk Route, Southeast Asia, you know, Burma, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and even Indonesia ages ago was largely Buddhist. And then up into uh, Korea, Japan, and China, and Taiwan. That whole reach of, and Mongolia, that whole reach of Asia was mostly Buddhist at one time or another. Now it's, it's shrinking a bit. Um, but that shows the effect of one person's impact in this world. And for those of you who've traveled to Asia, um, I'd ask you to reflect on the quality of the cultures you've been in that were in that sort of Buddhist umbrella. Because the places that I've been that have a big Buddhist imprint, 
I find myself really enjoying the culture. I find a lot of kindness and compassion. Places like Thailand and Burma, for example. So after his awakening, the Buddha totally devoted his life to teaching others. He didn't have any other interests or activity. 45 years was just service in giving, in teaching. So what was he like as a person? This really interests me. So one of the traditional meditations in Asia is to reflect on the wholesome qualities of the Buddha. And it's a good meditation because we realize that all those qualities are within ourselves also, but they just need to be developed or, or grown up. So reflecting on those qualities can be a reflection that really brightens the mind. Oh, this is really possible for a human being because it's really clear the Buddha was simply a human being like you and me. He made it very clear he was not considered to be a god or an angel or anything like that. Simply another human being and developed beautiful qualities that are there within all of us. So one Pali chant kind of expresses these qualities in a very short form. And it says, the Buddha endowed with such excellent qualities whose being is composed of purity, transcendental wisdom, and compassion. So if you're looking for a kind of short form to look at who the Buddha was, I like this expression, purity, wisdom, and compassion. So the purity part meant that his whole mindset was just wholesome. He had ended greed, he'd ended hatred, and he'd ended confusion in his own mind stream. So that just allowed all the beautiful qualities to come through. That's the purity. Through that opening of his awakening, he opened the door for what's called transcendental wisdom And this can be understood in two ways. One, he understood the wisdom that transcends suffering. So he understood the cause of suffering and he understood how to abandon the cause of suffering and come to the end of it. So he had transcended suffering. And the other way to understand transcendental is that he had touched this unconditioned element called Nibbana in which direct realization of which uproots unwholesome qualities. And it's a quality that transcends the sphere of the six senses. So that is the wisdom piece and then compassion. Once he had awakened, he never stopped working for the welfare of other people. He just continued teaching really until the day he died. Even on his deathbed, he continued to teach and give advice. His life wasn't about anything else. So some of the great qualities that he manifested when he was alive out of this mind of purity, one was great determination. You really see this in his practice life as the Bodhisattva. He spent six years doing nothing but intensive meditation practice. For us, six weeks is a long time, and it is a long time. His time scale was a little bit bigger, six years until his awakening. And he tried everything that he could think of and that others recommended. 
So you, you probably know that at that time, the ascetic practices were very strong in Northern India. And people thought, oh, if you starve the body, you'll release the soul. So he tried really starving the body. He said that he took to eating just once every two weeks. And he became so thin that his hair was falling out. And when he touched his belly, he felt his backbone. There was nothing between his skin and his backbone left. But then he saw that that wasn't leading anywhere. Finally, he took food and that was what helped him awaken. Great determination. Even after his awakening, he lived with complete simplicity. After his awakening, he had many wealthy supporters and donors. Uh, The two biggest kings in the north of India, King Bimbisara and King Pasenadi, were both students of his. They offered him gifts. They offered him tracts of land for the community. They supported him in many, many ways. If he had wanted, he could have retired to a palace been given great food and lived very comfortably for the rest of his life. But he chose not to do that. He continued living in the forest, which is not an easy life through the seasons of northern India. There's, there's winter, there's rain. Sometimes it's very cold, close to snow. So they asked him, why, you know, why are you living in the forest still? He said, for two benefits. I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations. He wanted to set an example for future practitioners because he considered the simple lifestyle to be the most conducive for waking up. So 2,500 years later, we have our version of living in the forest. It's much more comfortable than his. We actually have mattresses, we have roofs, we have heat in the winter. But our life is really simple here. So the way the Buddha lived, even after his awakening, is still a model for us, is still an inspiration for us in our practice. And that was his compassion. There's one story um, that really touches me. It's just a small story. It's not like a huge teaching story. But, you know, he used to walk around northern India. He made many trips all by foot, sometimes going hundreds of miles to give teachings in one spot or another. So on one of these trips, he, it was uh, close to wintertime. And uh, someone who was living locally was walking out in the morning and found the Buddha sitting on a pile of leaves that was not very thick on the ground, which was covered with frost. And this person approached the Buddha, recognized him, and said, "Um, Bhante, did you sleep well? And the Buddha replied, yes, I slept well. I am one of those in the world who sleep well. And then this lay person said, but Bhante, the winter nights are cold. It is the time when snow falls. The ground trampled by the hooves of cattle is rough. The spread of leaves is thin. The leaves on the trees are sparse. Your ochre robes could leave one cold and the gale wind blows cold. Yet the blessed one says, yes, I slept well. So he says, well, then let me ask you a question. Suppose a lay person has a house with a peaked roof plastered inside and out, free of drafts, 
with shutters closed, a couch spread with robes, blankets and covers, and an excellent cover of hides with a canopy above and red bolsters at both ends. Would he sleep well? And the layperson says, yes, of course. And the Buddha said, oh, really? What if he was tormented by wanting? What if he was tormented by hatred? What if he was tormented by confusion? Would he sleep well? And the layperson had to say, no, he wouldn't. All those luxuries would be no guarantee that he could sleep well. And the Buddha said, well, for me, the fires of lust, hate, and delusion have gone out. Therefore, I sleep well. Even on frosty ground, even just covered with his three robes, he sleeps well. The Buddha, as you can imagine, probably from some of the stories, had a very strong presence. And I think it came from the combination of stillness and complete attention in the present moment. If you've met people who have this combination, they radiate something very powerful. Thich Nhat Hanh used to come to Spirit Rock. Once every couple of years before we built our retreat center, the retreat center is on a hill that provided a kind of natural amphitheater. And now that amphitheater is filled with buildings and walkways and he didn't come anymore. But before that time, he would come and we'd build a platform for him and a loudspeaker system. And he would talk to about, I think it was about 2,000 people filling the hillside and the, the land around there. And I don't know if you've ever seen him speak, but he has one of these kinds of presence. He's very still. When he speaks, there's almost no movement of his body. And his words are coming from a place of uh, deep wisdom, reflection, and stillness, concentration. And when he spoke, it was as though he could cast a spell of stillness over those 2,000 people just by his presence, stillness, and the Dharma that he talked. It was really something amazing to see. So I think that was a small indication of the power that the Buddha had. So one of the things that was clearly communicated in the Buddha's presence was his loving kindness. There was a physician to one of the Northern Kings. Uh, The physician's name was Jivaka. And the King asked him to attend to the Buddha when the Buddha had a health problem. And uh, Jivaka was very strongly drawn to the Buddha's presence to his personality. And what he said about the Buddha was just like there are some said to be uh, in the Brahma realms who abide in loving kindness, so the blessed one abides in loving kindness. This was the, the physician's main read on the Buddha's character, on his personality, that he abided in loving kindness and greeted the people who came to him with that kind of friendly attitude. And then in his teaching, he obviously had a very strong transmission power. Again, I don't know if you've met teachers like this, but their words and their presence can spark insight really directly. So in the first discourse that he ever gave, called Setting in Motion the Wheel of the Dhamma, he gave it to five old friends who he had been practicing with. One of them was partially enlightened 
from that discourse. Then he had them all practice for another couple of weeks. He gave another discourse. All five of them were fully enlightened by that discourse. Then a while later, he was in the company of a group of yogic practitioners. Today we would call them Hindu practitioners, but that word wasn't really applicable back then. They were yogic practitioners who followed a path of fire sacrifice. So if you're going to talk to yogic practitioners of the fire sacrifice, what topic should you talk about? Well, fire might be a good idea. So the Buddha invented a Dharma talk on the spot, which has come to be known as the fire sermon. And the gist of the fire sermon is that the world is on fire. The senses are on fire. The heart is on fire. The mind is on fire with greed, hatred, and delusion. At the end of that discourse, it said that there were a thousand practitioners in front of him and all thousand became awakened from that discourse. So he clearly had this amazing transmission quality that I think was based on his wisdom, his stillness, and his way with words. Then another ability he had that was quite amazing is he could be in a group and just by tuning into people's vibes, he could tell who was close to awakening and he would then direct his teaching to that person and lead them step by step. He would sort of understand where they were and lead them step by step with just the questions and instructions that they needed to bring them to the point of waking up and then he would give that pointing and the person would awaken. So he seemed to know the right teaching to give for each person whom he met, which is an incredible quality that I wish we had, but not yet. He never seemed to be afraid. He was uh, about to walk someplace on a mountain path near where the killer Angulimala was known to be hanging out. Angulimala had killed 999 people and was going to kill one more. And the Buddha was about to walk that way. And all his friends and all his advisors said, don't go there. The bandit's going to come out of that mountain refuge and he's going to come and kill you. And the Buddha said, don't worry about that. I'm going to walk there. He walked there. Angulimala tried to kill him, couldn't do it. Instead, asked the Buddha what he taught, was converted on the spot, later became a member of the Sangha, practiced, and of course, awakened. So this is just a bit of the um, historical Buddha and the qualities of his heart and mind. And again, what I think is important to understand, and this is what leads into the inner, the inner is that all of us have this potential. We have this potential for awakening and freedom just as the Buddha had it. I think these qualities that came through the Buddha are not particularly personal to Siddhartha Gautama. They are aspects of the human mind that get unlocked by the depth of our own understanding and freedom. So the wisdom, the purity, the compassion are waiting there for the veils to drop away 
for that, for those deep treasures of the heart and mind to flow out. And you will feel this day by day and moment by moment on this retreat. As the clouds lift, more of those beautiful qualities start to come through. So this is not a personal unfolding. It's a universal human unfolding that the Buddha happened to have developed to a really high and beautiful degree. So kind of one, for me, one pointing to what the inner meaning of the refuge is about is this awake quality. You know, the word Buddha means awakened one. So this awake quality that we can bring in any moment, when you bring this attention in a fresh way into the present moment, that is activating that refuge, the refuge in the Buddha. So this is the direction. Anytime you feel close to discomfort, body and heart and mind, remember that awake quality is always available. When that awake quality meets the present moment, something special happens. This is how step-by-step awakening takes place. So our practice is just to return to that refuge of this awake attention moment after moment. This is the refuge in the inner Buddha. The refuge in the Dharma in the outer sense means the teachings of the Buddha. They're often called the Dharma. So one of the beauties of the long retreat is that we are really steeped in the teachings of the Buddha. Day by day, through the instructions, the discussions, the meetings with teachers, the evening talks, the Dharma is really all we're hearing. So it just starts to permeate. These teachings start to permeate as they go in really deeply um, below the surface so that they become more and more available and more and more of a refuge. And when I turn to the kind of outer meaning of refuge in the Dharma, I like to reflect on, well, if you had to sum up the teachings of the Buddha in a really short and simple way, it might be the teaching on impermanence. This is always helpful to reflect on in times of discomfort. Everything changes, nothing stays the same. So whatever difficulty you're in, it's going to pass. When we're in the middle, the hindrance tells us it won't. You know, the hindrance says, oh, it's going to be permanent, but it isn't. So this reflection on impermanence is a short way to recollect the outer refuge in the Dharma. In the inner refuge, Dharma means um, truth or nature or law, or I like the way things are. The Dharma is the way things are. So when we talk about practicing the Dharma, We mean practicing with the truth of things. So when you combine the Dharma as truth with the inner Buddha as being awareness, attention, then when the inner refuge in awareness meets the inner refuge of the truth of one's experience, that's where freedom comes from. That's kind of the key that unlocks things. Ajahn Sumedho has a nice way of phrasing this. He says, the Buddha knows the Dhamma. 
I used to think, well, of course the Buddha knows the Dhamma. He made it up. But really what it's pointing to is that inner Buddha of awareness meets the inner Dhamma of our direct experience, the truth of our experience. That's where freedom comes from because we see the way things are. And it's seeing how things are that liberates the heart and mind. And that alignment can happen in every moment. Refuge in the Buddha meeting, refuge in the Dharma can happen at any time. The Sangha. I wanna talk about kind of two meanings of Sangha. Traditionally, the word Sangha has two, two significances. One is the monastic Sangha. So those women and men who have committed their whole lives to the path of awakening through taking on the robes and renouncing all the aspects of lay life considered a refuge for us due to the strength of their commitment and the development of their practice through that form. The second meaning in the traditional sense is the community of awakened beings, those who have partially or fully awakened, sometimes called the noble Sangha or Aryan Sangha. And they are uh, appropriate grounds for refuge because of the depth of their understanding and degree of freedom. In the modern sense, Sangha has come to mean the community of all of us together who are practicing and committed to the path of awakening, journeying together with commitment on this path to waking up. So we'll use Sangha in all three ways here. So we especially appreciate as we're practicing together in this community aspect, how much support we draw from one another. You know, if you thought about doing these six weeks or three months on your own, it would be really daunting. But because you're doing it with 90 other people, that support is always there as a felt thing and you support them as well as you practice. So we support each other through this outer representation of Sangha. In the inner Sangha, what I like to think about are what are the qualities that we manifest as practitioners? What are the qualities that you draw from to inspire you when you see one another? What are the qualities that you manifest that can inspire others as we practice together? So I think a few of the things that come to my mind are determination, Understanding that this is the path to freedom. We manifest that through our actions. Courage. To keep sitting when you may not want to sit. To keep walking when you may not want to walk. The compassion for one another. Becomes very sweet at times. The way you look on one another. You don't have to do big things. It's probably best not to. But you'll feel that kind of intimate connection to each other. So the compassion and the loving kindness are there a lot as the community grows together. So these are all facets of the awakened mind that come out of the falling away of the veils and the emergence of wisdom and compassion. So having gone through the uh, refuges, let's just chant those together to begin. So I hope you picked up a sheet from out front. 
So we'll chant the refuges first. Later I'll talk a little about the precepts and then we'll chant those. So with the um, homage and the three refuges, I think we'll chant them in unison because quite a lot of you know these. When we get to the precepts, we'll do call and response. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddham saranang gachami, Dhammang saranang gachami, Sangang saranang gachami, Dutiyampi buddham saranang gachami, Dutiyampi dhammang saranang gachami, Dutiyampi sangang saranang gachami. Tatiyampi buddhang saranang gachami. Tatiyampi dhammang saranang gachami. Tatiyampi sangang saranang gachami. Then I wanted to say just a few words to introduce the five precepts. We'll just take the first five tonight. We'll talk about and offer the eight precepts in a few days, but just for this evening, we'll start with uh, the five precepts. And of course, you understand the five precepts are really about non-harming. They're an outward expression of what the compassionate or loving heart would do in actions in the world. They're not moral commandments. They're considered training rules. And the way they work is they train us to keep our conduct fairly straight so that we don't have cause for regret. And the Buddha said that when our conduct is proper, we enjoy freedom from remorse. The benefit of that is gladness. The benefit of gladness is joy. The benefit of joy is happiness. The benefit of happiness is concentration. The benefit of concentration is knowing and seeing things the way they are. And the benefit of knowing and seeing things the way they are is liberation. So this is the foundation of keeping the heart and mind clear from regret, confusion, conflict, disturbance, so that the deepening of the meditation can take place, leading to happiness, insight, and freedom. So I think you're probably quite familiar with these five. I'll just mention them briefly. The first is to refrain from taking life. Anything that lives, we respect that it wishes to live just as deeply as we wish to live. That for all beings, their life is their most precious possession. When you look upon beings with a heart of kindness, you recognize their attachment to their life and you do everything you can to honor that not taking 
the life of any living being. The second precept uh, is framed as not taking what isn't freely given, freely offered. Um, For you as yogis here, that probably mostly comes down to uh, things like food. We take food when it's put out and offered from the kitchen, and we don't take it when it's not put out and offered. This sounds simple, but it hasn't always been observed that clearly here. So one evening about midnight, this is when I was on staff, one staff member walked into the kitchen and noticed that the door to the walk-in fridge was slightly ajar. So they went and opened the door, and they found one of the three-month yogis in the walk-in fridge with their hand in a box of figs. And the staff person, being a compassionate and thoughtful person, said, can I help you? (laughs) And the yogi looked up and said, oh, I was looking for the maintenance office. (laughs) So to avoid that kind of embarrassment, simply not taking that which isn't freely offered. Um, And also in terms of yogi needs, you know, if you take things from the closet, pay for them. Don't borrow other people's cushions, blankets, etc. Really stick to what is yours. The third precept in the context of retreat is not engaging in sexual activity. And this is really not so much a non-harming precept, although it has that implication too, not to disturb obviously another yogi's meditation, but also not to become distracted through activities that aren't supporting the basic move to present moment self-sufficiency. Just contentment with what already is here is the direction of the practice, not looking for more than that. The fourth precept in uh, lay life is not saying what isn't true. Here we observe that and we extend it to include noble silence. Noble silence, as I think um, Sally and Bonnie talked about this afternoon, is not meant to be a cold, or distancing or isolating thing. It's meant to be actually the creation of a warm and safe container that allows each of us to go through our own journey without interference. So being able to settle into one's own process and realize I don't have to communicate to anyone else. I don't have to try to be pleasant or say something funny or endearing. I can simply let my process be the way it is. It really simplifies things, and that's what's ennobling about it. It lets us get deeper into our own uh, journey. So I think of noble silence as we give up unnecessary talking. If you need to talk to Roberta about anything logistical, if you need to call on Jared or John, feel free to do so. Of course, you'll talk to your teachers in the practice meetings. That's all uh, completely appropriate. But please don't talk to one another. Please don't make contact with one another through notes or, or conversation. Um, I think Sally and Bonnie mentioned that this afternoon also. Please don't write notes to one another. It can be very disturbing in the sensitivity of a long retreat. And then it extends, of course, to uh, telephone, emails, texts, internet, Uh, If you need to use the internet for a plane reservation or a medical situation, please talk to Roberta, who might ask you to check it out with your teacher, and we can work out if there's an actual need, but otherwise we ask you to renounce those activities. Um, 
just on a recent retreat I taught, someone had really intended to renounce communication, happened to turn on their smartphone, got one text from a partner that was very upsetting, and it blew their meditation out of the water for several days. So please keep that container really clear and uh, firm for yourself. It will really protect your practice. Uh, Sometimes people come on retreats with a partner or a really good friend. And um, sometimes couples like to support each other during the retreat by hanging out together. It might be uh, sitting together at meals. It might be walking side by side in the walking meditation. And I really recommend as if you're here with your partner as part of a couple that you really try not to have contact like that. Because what what usually happens, because I've talked to a lot of couples on retreat, is that one partner starts to want less contact than the other. Ever seen this dynamic in daily life? It happens on retreat also. And if you're not speaking, it's very hard to work that out. So one partner starts withdrawing, the other partner starts feeling very insecure or rejected, and then things become tense, and it's difficult for both. So the simplest thing, if you're here for a partner, act like you don't know them. Sally and I have sat a lot of retreats together, and if you came in and were sitting with us, you'd never know that we were a couple. So pretend you're not while you're here, and that will be simplest for you. And it will also keep from um, stirring things up in other yogis, like, oh, I wish my partner was here. I wish I had a partner who was connected with the Dharma. I'd like a little company from time to time. So let it be the individual experience for each one of us uh, here. Now, in terms of the renunciation of devices, we're going to have one more meaningful ritual in a couple of days, and that's what we call the cell phone renunciation ceremony. Did you all mention? Just briefly. Okay. So that will be on Tuesday morning. You will be invited to actually turn in for the manager your cell phone or tablet or laptop so that it will be removed from temptation's reach for the duration of the retreat. And we'll put more details out tomorrow about how to do that. And Tuesday morning, we will actually have a little ritual in here to celebrate uh, the renunciation from those who wish. It's not obligatory, but it is a great support. And it's a really happy thing to do. You know, it lifts a lot of um, worry to do that. The fifth precept is not to use recreational drugs or, or intoxicants while you're here. The meditation process does enough mind shifting that we don't need to cloud it with other um, intoxicants. So please refrain from the use of alcohol and other drugs. If you're on prescription medications that your doctor has recommended, please do continue with those. We're not asking for you to give up drugs that you need for your health and well-being, only recreational drugs. So please continue with the medications that you've been advised to take. Okay, so these precepts create a condition for a lot of simplicity in our life together as a community. And what that simplicity allows is the revealing of what's underneath. So it's a little bit like 
when autumn comes, which it's already starting, and the leaves start coming off the trees, you can really see the structure of the limbs and branches. The leaves fall away and everything else is exposed and really clear. So when these external activities fall away, what we're left with is the workings of our own hearts and minds. That's what we see. The external situation is fairly simple, but what gets added to it or on top of it, you might say, are our own emotional and mental reactions. And that's what we're here to learn about. You know, we don't need to learn about how other yogis are doing. We're here to learn about how our own hearts and minds relate to the situations of life. So when things become really simple, that's exactly what gets exposed, just like the bare branches of the trees. And that's what we want to learn from. So that is the uh, short explanation of the five precepts. And now let's take these together. And because these are a little longer, let's do these in call and response. So I'll say a bit of a phrase and then ask you to repeat it back to me. Panatipata Veratmani Sikapadang Samadhyami Adina Dana Veratmani Sikapadang Samadhyami Abrahmacharya where up my Kapadang Samadhyami. Musawada. Where up my Kapadang Samadhyami. Sura Meraya. Majapamadatana Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami And then the dedication, call and response. Idam me silang Idam me silang Magapala Pachayo ho tu. So thank you all for your attention and participation. And uh, with that, the retreat is formally underway and we've entered into the period of, of noble silence, which will continue for the remainder of the retreat until integration time, either at six weeks or, or three months. So just one announcement uh, this evening at the nine o'clock sit, we'll, which will happen every night, we'll begin the chanting tonight. No, tomorrow. Oh, we're not beginning tonight? No. I was misinformed. 
I thought there were waters in Casablanca. Sorry. So we'll begin the chanting tomorrow night. So tonight, there will be the nine o'clock sit. Do we have a leader? Winnie's going to sit? Okay. So the sitting will be led, but there won't be chanting tonight. (laughs) Eh? I'll chant it. Okay. For them, just so they can hear it. Okay. So there will be some chanting tonight. (laughs) And the formal instruction will start tomorrow night. Okay. Time for walking, nine o'clock next sitting.